we're going to look at a variety of verses while they are in children's church beginning their journey back through the Bible. We're in week three of a series that we're looking at where culture and Christianity collide. And today we want to look at living out God's great generosity to us. And uh, the Bible demands... As we've seen the last couple of weeks, the Bible demands that we as followers of Christ, that our attitudes, that our convictions, that our opinions regarding how we live and how we interact with the world around us, that they align themselves with the God of this Bible. And, and you can listen to the, 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 the sermons that we've covered so far. All of these are, are logged on the internet. We, we started in 1 Peter 3.15 and just that setting apart ourselves, setting apart God, sanctifying our hearts, that defending the Lord, that giving a, a, a defense starts with setting God apart. And today we're going to look at one of the overflows of having been set apart, have, of having set our lives apart, ourselves apart. And, and today specifically it's regarding how we respond to poverty. How, how do we respond to those around us that have real needs? How do we respond to those around us who have, who have needs that, that we can meet? I'm talking about justified, legitimate needs that we can meet. How do we respond? How, how does the gospel affect our attitude regarding these individuals, regarding our attitudes towards our own things and how God may have blessed us in order to bless them? How, how do we respond? And, and the gospel has everything to do with how we address this topic, just like it has everything to do with how we address every topic. How, how we serve the, the, those who are in need, how we serve those that are struggling, because the, in the gospel, we who were spiritually poor have been made spiritually rich. We'll see today, 2 Corinthians 8 says, he, he became poor that we might become rich. He emptied himself. Emptied himself. He, he has made us rich. In response to that, that's the gospel. In response to that, we are to go and do likewise, not only spiritually, but also physically and materially. We're not to separate our attack of poverty from the gospel. That would be socialism. We're not just here to, to make people full. We're not just here to provide. We're, we, we go with the gospel. But we can't separate serving individuals that need to be served from the gospel. And, and our attitude towards the poor, our attitude toward all these issues that, that we're going to look at are impacted by the gospel. And if I asked you right now, if I said right now, what would, what would you say, just where you're at, just think through this, what would you say your attitude towards the poor typically is? What would you say your attitude, when you see somebody in need, what is your general attitude? Do, do you think that you already know why they're in need? Do you assume that you know why they've gotten or what caused them to get to the place where they've gotten? Do you automatically assume that there's some flaw in their character? Do, do you assume that, that you know their story before you take the time to hear their story? Do, do you just automatically assume that, that they're not being honest, that they're just trying to scam you? Do you, do you just assume that? Do, do you even care? Are you, are you willing to get dirty? Have we stewarded our lives that we would be willing and have the time and the energy and the spare in our schedule to even get dirty? Have we crammed our lives so full of ourselves and so full of stuff that when there's real needs, we can't afford to meet them? We can afford to meet them, but we're so busy we can't afford to meet them. Are you willing to 
to come alongside people that students, think about you, are you willing to come alongside kids in your schools that don't look like you or act like you or think like you or live like you? Are you willing to come alongside them? Or do you go along with the cool crowd and make sure they know that they're weird or that they're different? Do you go along right with the crowd and make them feel isolated like that? What do you do? Do you make fun of the kid that obviously doesn't have enough stuff, that obviously wears the same clothes regularly, that obviously doesn't live like you? Do you make sure they know that they feel singled out, that they know they're singled out, or do you, do you defend them? Do you, do you look for ways to protect them? Do, do you look for ways to stand in the gap for them? Because your, your attitude in middle school, your attitude in high school, trust me, you're going to get old like us. You're going to fight those same sorry attitudes. You're going to get old like us and you're going to wonder, what was I known for in high school? Were you the kid that came alongside the kids that needed a friend or were you the kid that just trying to be cool and you realize you're old like me and you never were cool? The cool kid was the one that took up the defense for those other kids that stood in the gap. I want to start our study today. I want to, I want to answer some questions. I, I try to, I don't want to do the same thing every Sunday. I, I want to attack it the way that I think it can be attacked. And today I want to answer some questions. I questions that you may have, questions that I might have. I want to answer some questions today. And if you'll turn with me to Luke 10, we're going to start there. We're going to bounce around. That's why at the beginning at the top it says various scriptures. I'm going to start in Luke 10 because Luke 10 answers a fundamental question that fuels everything that we will see today. Regarding people in need, regarding somebody who has a real legitimate need, Luke 10 goes a long way. Jesus answers the question here that we're still asking today. He deals with the same actions, the same ways to try to wiggle around things, the same things that go on here are going on today. Same fundamental question is asked of Jesus that we're still asking today. And I, it's interesting how Jesus answers it. The, the first question I want to answer today regarding serving the, those in need is this. Who is my neighbor to whom we are commanded to love as ourselves? Who is my neighbor? We need to make sure we understand first and foremost, who is my neighbor? Look, look at Luke 10, starting in verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord God, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and, with all, and, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Here's the, listen. Verse 29, but wishing to justify himself. Anybody got a problem in here like me with justifying yourself? Anybody real good at justifying your own behavior? We're real good at justifying ourselves. We're real good at looking for reasons not to do what we know to do and justifying why we're not doing them. Wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? That, that's the question. Big deal. We're commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. The whole law and the prophets summed up in this. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's important that we understand who's our neighbor. L listen to the story that Jesus tells. Familiar story, but I, I want to ask us some questions. Evaluate ourselves. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. And they stripped him, and they beat him, and they, they went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. He put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, listen to this, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Here's the question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Interesting how Jesus depicts who answers the question, who's the neighbor? I mean, he, he goes for the juggler. He fires a shot right over their brow. And before we jump in, I, I thought about this as I, as I looked at this. I thought about this question. Who in this story best depicts you? Are you the lawyer who likes to justify themselves and asks good questions so that you can ultimately justify yourself? Are you the priest who saw a real need and passed by on the other side? Kind of made sure he went a different route so he wasn't directly confronted with the need. He could maybe justify himself by saying, oh, I didn't even notice him over there. You know, I was on the right side of the road. He was on the left side of the road. I didn't even notice him over there. Are you the Levite? Or are you the Samaritan? Who, who, who would best depict you? If we were casting roles, who would your life most resemble? If we're honest, most of us, as we've said, most of us in many ways and shapes would fall into the, we would be, we would be the lawyer seeking to justify ourselves. We know what to do, know what we're not doing, and we justify not doing it. We, or, or else we'll try to minimize and really, really narrow down who our neighbor is. We'll make it so tiny that it'd be a miracle for anybody to fall into the classification of who actually our neighbor is. It would be a miracle for anybody to meet that classification. So we actually had to help. And what Jesus does here is he erases, he erases almost every single one of our escape clauses that we use to try to wiggle out. And the essence of what Jesus is explaining and what he's revealing is a heart that doesn't really want to serve. A heart that's really not interested. Or it's exposing a heart that really says this, I don't want to go crazy. I don't want to do more than I'm expected. Can you just tell me what do I need to do to get by and that way we'll be all right? What's the minimum? I mean, if I don't have to serve this person, yeah, I don't want to waste my time serving this person, so just tell me who is it and let, so I can make sure I only serve them. It's like your kids. You ever been with your kids and, and they won't eat and, and they'll say, how many of these peas do I have to eat to get up from this dinner table? Like, I, if it's 10, I don't want to eat 11. I, I just, what do I got to do to get this over with? I mean, in our house, usually it's just eat one. Just eat one. Just, just please, Sarah, eat one. Eat something. It, it's, a get, it's a, hey, can I just get this over attitude? Can I, just, can I just get this over with? Can I just get this done? Can I just check the box? Can I, can I do the minimum required of me? Check the box, assuage my conscience, justify myself and move on the question becomes this are the poor like peas on your child's plate do you see people's needs the way your children see peas a necessary evil how little do i need to do to get to get out of here how little do i need to do to move on to bigger and better things more important things or do we see them as opportunities to display God's grace and character? And in response to their question, who is my neighbor? Jesus broadened the gate as wide as he could possibly open it. 
much more than, than they would have expected. Again, culture and Christianity are clashing here. He's talking to a group that would have had a very, very ne narrow definition of neighbor. And you know what Jesus did? He, he, he broke all the cultural norms. He broke all of the, all the, the, the prejudices and all the things. He's going to have a Samaritan serving a Jew in this story. Are you crazy? There would have been no bigger difference, no more justifiable reason for the two of them not to come. I mean, Jews wouldn't even walk through their country. They would go way out of their way to avoid them. And yet here's a Samaritan who's willing to serve a Jew. There, there would have been no claim. Look, this is not a story where you said, you know what, that person could have had a claim, could have made a claim on this person. No, no, there's no claim made here. This person had utterly no right to expect it. There, would have been, there were no obligation. This is total grace. And I think the implication of what Jesus is saying is this, is we better be very careful when we try to narrow who our neighbor is. We better be real careful when we're looking for ways to not serve. And I think Jesus is saying, no, my people ought to be looking for reasons to serve. And in response to the, to, the neighbors, to the lawyer's question of who is my neighbor, Jesus defines our neighbor as anyone that we have the ability to show mercy to. Anyone that we have the ability to show mercy to. That's what he's saying. We're, we're to show mercy on anyone who we have the ability and the opportunity to show mercy to. And here's why. Because that is exactly what God has done in the gospel. He has showered mercy and grace and, and made provision for sins even to the false teachers, Peter says. To those who deny Him and hate Him, He made provision. Showered mercy. Friend, foe, Jew, Gentile, anyone can receive God's mercy. And our obedience here, doing likewise, reflects the gospel. It is a reflection of the gospel. It is a reflection of the mercy that we first have received. The question we ought to be asking is not, how do I get out of this? It's this, how would I want someone to respond to me if I were in that situation? How would I want someone to, you know, you have, some of you have kids that are off to college and are away. How would you want someone to respond to your kid if they were in that situation? What if they had fallen by the wayside? What if they fell into the hands of robbers? What if they had real needs? You want people walking by the other side of the street or do you want them to pursue them? You know what Jesus says? Go and do likewise. When, when, when we look at the world in this light, ignoring the needs around us, ignoring, I'm talking about real needs, is not an option. It's not an option. The reason is this, because it is a, mess, a misrepresentation of the grace that we have received. It is a misrepresentation. And that's, it's an overflow. We do this out of an overflow of grace. I'm not trying to earn it. I'm not paying God back. I'm not trying to justify Him choosing me. I'm simply doing it out of an awe, like Daniel's saying, of grace. It is an overflow. The gospel demands that believers look at their lives in counter-cultural ways. That demands it. The gospel demands that we, we be a people who look for ways to serve rather than ways not to serve. It, it demands that we, have, that we show the same sacrificial mercy that we have received. God desires that we be conduits that give His mercy to others, that we not be cul-de-sacs, that we not be dead ends. We're to be conduits. We're to shower that upon others. We, we've, we've looked at this one before, but, but it, it bears repeating. I mean, Proverbs 3 is, is a convicting passage. Proverbs 3, 27. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do so. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. 
That's very clear. You've got to do a lot of hard linguistic gymnastics to get out from under that one. I mean, that's pretty clear. Can you do it? God, give me your... No, in the next week, reveal to me your will. I already did. It's in Proverbs 3, 27 and 28. I gave it to you a long time ago. I put that stuff in your account a long time ago so that you could do it. James 2, I mean, James 4, 17, to the one who knows what to do and doesn't do it, to that man it's sin. Guess what? You're on, call. You're on call. You know what to do. Same with me. Who, who, who is this? The question becomes this. Who is this in your life? At school, at work, in your neighborhood? Who might you be ignoring? Who might you be intentionally overlooking because they, don't, they, they, they won't help your cool quotient? Because they're going to be taxing. Because they're going to require you to give and you may not get a whole lot, but it's going to require a lot of give. Who is it? Who is that? The question is this, who's your neighbor? You look at your school and you look around your class and you say this, God, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? That, that, you're at a specific, students, you're at a specific class in seven, eight of them a day for the purpose of this, to show God's grace. Men, women, you're at work. You're in specific neighborhoods for the same reason. Show God's grace. This past Tuesday, we had a... Karen's not in here, is she? Oh, good, I can tell the story because it was... It's not a... It's, it, you'll see what I mean. It was, it was emotional. It was emotional. We were... Um, we were watching... Uh, I just... We watched something and it ended and I started watching this thing on ESPN... And there was a story there um, about a boy who had a disease. It's called EB, and I can't pronounce what it is. But it's basically a skin disease where his skin is literally paper thin. You could see his muscle through his skin. And, and he has to stay, it's only from the neck down, he has to stay wrapped literally like a mummy almost, from the neck down at all times because of the disease and the damage. I mean, literally paper thin. Single mom, struggling. And they chronicled, they chronicled and showed this kid at school and how the kids treated him. How, how he's basically isolated because he's different. Has nothing to offer him. It chronicled how on a daily basis, this mom, every other day, has to get a warm bath going, put this little boy in there, let the water wet, the, and one by one, unwrap the, unwrap the bandages and let him sit in this tub. Three-hour process. And, and it showed him. He was standing there naked but covered up rightly. And it just showed, and she would one by one have to put the bandages no one comes to her help. No one. The little boy, they asked him how it made him feel at school when the, when the kids talk about him and, and make fun of him and do all this stuff. And Karen and I were just sitting there weeping. We literally, we went and got our kids up and brought them back in the living room and said, you got, you got to watch this. And, and, and we begged our kids not to be those kids. We begged them. But, but that, that's an extreme example. But what about kids that are a little different? How do you treat them? What, what, about, what about people at your work that are a little different? How do, you, how do we treat them? How, how do we as a church pursue people that that maybe have nothing to offer us or, or, or maybe become taxing on us? How do we pursue them? They're our neighbor. And the question becomes this, how are you doing with your neighbor? Do you have a wide definition or do you have a narrow definition of neighbor? Do you make excuses how, how to get out of serving 
or do you make excuses for serving? That's the question. The, the gospel is at stake in how we pursue this. The, the gospel is at stake. Secondly, okay, secondly is this. What is God's heart? The second question I want us to ask is this. We, we looked at what our neighbor is. Okay, what is God's heart towards those who are my neighbor? What, what is God's heart to those who are my neighbor? I think if we were honest, we could all give examples of those of, of times where we where we did help when when we where we should have helped and didn't, we we probably could all give it examples of maybe at times where we were taken advantage of. We we can all deal with questions where we said should we or shouldn't we? Is this legitimate or not? What maybe there are times when I have helped when I shouldn't, and maybe there are times when I should have. But what is our heart? What's God's heart towards this? I'm not at all saying that you have to do everything and feel guilty about not doing everything. Second, like, for instance, I'm talking about legitimate needs here. Second Thessalonians 3.10 says, If a man is not willing to work, then he's not to eat. It's very clear. But I'm talking about what is our heart? Do we have a heart that lines up with God and, and His Word towards those who have needs? And in the end... What, what is it all about? It's about glorifying God. And I'm talking about real needs. Do not, do not mishear me. Uh, but but I, what I am saying is this. Be careful with our deceitful hearts. Don't, don't try to wiggle out like the lawyer did. Don't, don't convince yourselves that, that sinning and, and ignoring needs are okay because we, we know. Well, we don't know. And, and I can be real good at justifying my heart and justifying my sinful heart. Don't, don't try and ignore people by walking on the other side, getting away or, or distancing. If we, if, if we don't want to help, trust me, we'll figure out a way not to help. That's why I said, what is God's heart? And, and I want to take a few moments here um, and just go kind of old school sword drills, if you will. I, I don't want us to miss God's heart. I, I don't, I'm not trying to put words in, in our mouths. I, I want us to see very clearly what God's heart is towards those who have needs. Levitic, and they're, they're, they're on your handout. You can make notes on them if you want. Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. Nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You know what he says? He's saying don't use up every single thing you have on yourself. He's built in a provision for those who have needs. He's saying don't, if you make $100, don't spend $100. Make provision. Leviticus 25, verse 35. In the case of a countryman of yours becomes poor and, this, and his means with regard to your father, then you are to sustain him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Do not take usurious interest from him, but revere your God that your countrymen may live with you. You shall not give him your silver at interest nor your food for gain. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. You know what he's saying? He's saying you look at God's grace and how God provided for you and you go do likewise. Go do likewise. Deuteronomy 15. If there's a poor man with you, one of your brothers, if any of your towns in your land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your, from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Listen to this. Beware that there is no base thought in your heart saying, The seventh year, the year of remission is near, and your eye is hostile toward your poor brother, and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be sin in you. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be heart grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work. L listen to Psalm 9, 9. We won't go through all these for the sake of time. I'm running long already. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Who's their defender? The Lord. Deuteronomy, uh, or Psalm 9, verse 17. The wicked 
for the needy will not always be forgotten, verse 18 of Psalm 9, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Psalm 72, same thing, that God's heart towards those in need. Psalm 72, verse 3, Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush their oppressor. Be careful taking advantage of people. God is their refuge. He's their defender. Proverb, just a couple, Proverb 14, 21. He who despises his neighbor sins, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. The Bible is clear. If you put all those together, and I would encourage you maybe, especially if you have children, read through those. The Bible is very clear that God's heart, what God's heart is toward those in need, and that we, his people, are to reflect that heart. God desires that, that we make sure the world knows that He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, that Exodus 34 says, that, that He lifts the needy from the ash heap, that 1 Psalm 2 verse 8 says. That He executes justice against the oppressed and gives food to the hungry, Psalm 146 verse 7. That's His heart. What we have to understand is through serving our Savior, through serving the needy, we are representing our Savior. We are, we are showing His character to a lost world. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, Be imitators of God, walking in love, just as Christ Jesus gave Himself up for us. We're to be imitators. God has met our needs, so we do the same. It's Christ's actions that if we have been recipients of, that motivates us, that fuels us. We don't serve out of guilt. You see on your handout, we're fueled by what God has done for us through the gospel. Our, God's grace is fueled for our grace. Look, look at me at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, two of the best chapters in the Bible regarding our giving. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 5. Listen to this. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Poverty was not an excuse to be, to be, to be generous. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. They weren't guilted in it. They weren't coerced. Begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Could you imagine literally begging for the opportunity to give? I, I, I confess you, I've never begged. I don't know that I've ever begged somebody to be able to give to them. They were, they were begging. But look, verse 5, And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. They had set apart the Lord. They were in awe of God's grace. God's grace was the motivation. They first gave themselves to the Lord, and God's grace fueled that. That's what we saw in 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness and respect. It starts with being in awe of God, as Daniel led us this morning, of setting apart God. You, you say, but I don't want to. You say, how do I get to the place where I want to? Have you ever confessed that to God? Have you ever cared enough to ask God to give you a heart that you would care for that boy or girl at school or that man or woman at work or in the neighborhood? Have you ever asked God to change your heart? If we want it bad enough, we'll ask Him. And what, what the Scriptures are teaching is, is this, that we do these things out of faith. We don't do them out of results. We don't do them because I, I don't know the, the end game. I don't know. You know, for the sake of embarrassment, and that's why I looked at Chris earlier, Emiliano, right? Just as God would have it, Emiliano just walked through these doors to worship with us today. You know how I met Emiliano. Emiliano was working at that building over there, and I, I'm not, I'm not going to embarrass you, but Emiliano had, had some needs. And me, and I think it was Chris Adams, and Christian Hockley were 
having a Bible study over here, and Emiliano came over here and just basically took over the Bible study. He knew more word than the rest of us, more of the word than the rest of us. And we built a relationship with Emiliano. I have not seen Emiliano since that day. But he made himself vulnerable and made some, made some needs, some basic needs known to us for he and his family. And by God's grace, we met those needs. So we helped him. And of all the days, Emilio walks in our service today talking about this. I, I could not have, or, I, I promise you I didn't orchestrate that. Did I pay you to do that? I did not pay you to do that. But we offered him some work. We asked what he was good at. He, 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 had some, he has a lot of abilities. We had needs here. He worked. He met the needs, and we helped him. We took a risk. I don't know if he was scamming me or not. We took a risk. I, we did it out of faith. We did the best we could to try to assess, is this legitimate need or not? And we did it out of faith. And the goal for us is I want us to get from a have-to attitude to a want-to attitude, to want to help, to look for ways to help, to be fueled by the grace of God, that we would fear God more than we would fear man, that we'd be willing to take risks and, and not care what people, oh, you got took or you got this. Hey, guess what? I serve God. I don't know if I did or not. I'm going to do the best I can to steward what I have, and I'm not just throwing stuff away, but I'm going to do the best I can, and I'm going to live by faith, but I'm going to live with an open hand to the best of my ability. You see in Scripture that God is a God who is extravagant in His eagerness to serve and to defend and to demonstrate His love specifically to those who have no needs, to show His compassion on behalf of others. And it's our, the call is for us as individuals to have a heart, to have a heart that aligns up with God, that we want to, that we're looking for ways, that we're not so consumed with ourselves that we're looking for ways to serve others. And with that, I want to answer the third question that flows out of that. How can we cultivate attitudes that accurately represent God? How can we cultivate those attitudes? Listen to me in 1 Timothy, verse 4. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for women. Old women, easy with that verse there. Have fun interpreting that verse. On the other hand, listen to this. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You know, you know, what, you know what Paul would be saying to us today? Your, your pursuit and your discipline of this should not be rivaled by your pursuit or your discipline of anything else. I, I know people who spend a ton of time working on this, and they have no clue about this. Christians. When this is good for the present and the future, and this is good for nothing, ask Karen. Why would I spend more time worried about earthly things? It's discipline. You know, no, nothing is achieved without discipline. Nothing good. Discipline. And the gospel changes everything, even about my want-tos. And I discipline myself, and I seek to discipline myself for the glory of the gospel, for the spread of the gospel, because Jesus Christ is Savior of the world. And I live to spread this truth. I fix my hope on God. So I want to answer real quickly before we leave some, some attitudes or some disciplines that will help us move to the point where we can be generous individuals. What are some attitudes? What are some disciplines? And I just picked a couple of three here real quick. You'll see in your handout. Our first is our attitude towards work. Attitudes towards work. The question is this. Why do you work? What's your theology of work? That's going to dictate it, because if you work for you, guess who you're going to spend for? You. But the theology of work, according to this Bible, is that God has given me a job and ability to work so that I can provide for me and I can provide for you when you have a need. 
Do we see work that way? Is work about me and mine and, you know, hey, God expands my standard. If he, if he gives me a raise, you know what that means? I get to spend more on me. Is that your theology of work? Because Ephesians 4, 28, he said, Paul says, hey, to the one who steals, let him steal no longer. He says, tell him to go get a job so he can provide for his own family, but also for the person in need. Even the thief. He says, stop stealing, get a job, provide for yourself, oh, and also provide for others. Work is not, work is not a curse. Adam put, God put Adam in the garden long before sin. You know what he said? Cultivate and keep it. There is a tremendous amount of dignity and worth and self-worth in work. It is a good thing. But ultimately, we work as unto the Lord. I work unto the Lord. I'm not a man. I don't try not to be a man pleaser. I'm a God pleaser. Even in my, even my theology of work. And the question becomes this. Does our attitude towards work align up with the Gospels, with the Bible? Do I, do I see the gift of work? The ability to work is a gift of God's grace to provide for your family, but also to provide for other people's families when there is a real, legitimate need. That is clear in Scripture. There is a broader purpose behind your working. And I hope we will see the bigger picture of what God is doing with our work. Even, even our theology of work, our attitude of work, that is a discipline. You're disciplining yourself so that you can do what God has called you to do, maintaining a godly, biblical discipline and attitude towards work. And work is often overlooked as a built-in means that God uses to provide for the poor. Work. We have the ability to work. Praise God. So provide, provide for your family, but provide for others. Students, I thought about this. Students, do, do, what do you see college? Do, what's your attitude towards college? Is it in, in getting a grade? Is it, hey, so I can go get a job and make tons of money and live lavishly? Or is it, hey, praise God, I can go provide for my family well, but I can also be a blessing to others. Is that, is that why you look at college? That you'll be a provider, not only for your family, but for others? Or, or is it solely about you? Do, men and women, do you want that raise so that you can get the bigger house? Or do you want that raise so that you can be a, a more generous giver and provider for others? Why? The question is why? Because in 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 19, he says this, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Enjoying God's blessings is not a sin. It can become that. Listen, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Discipline. Discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. Discipline our budget, discipline our work habits, discipline our lives so that we, for godliness sake. That's what he's saying. Discipline. God desires that we work for his glory and the good of our family and others. The question becomes, do you work this way? But not only our attitude toward work needs to line up with scriptures, our attitude toward stuff must reflect the gospel and prepare us to serve. If you read the book of Amos and there's two... I, I, we're probably convicted enough and, you know, you, you speak and you can tell, the, tell the, the mood in a room and all that. And I'm, this is heavy and I get that, so I'll spare you Amos. But go read Amos. I, you don't even know, if, some of you may not know Amos is in the Bible. He's way back there. He's way back in the back. I even on mine just to spare the embarrassment of fumbling around in the scriptures. In my notes it says it's on page 769. <laughs> just so you know, you think, man, that name knows his Bible. No, I'm smart enough to write the page number down. The last thing I want to do is fumble between Habakkuk and Joel and Nahum and all those pages that are stuck together and be like, Chris, when's the last time you flipped back there, big boy? But the problem in Amos' day was this. He was showing the dangers of prosperity. It was a culture who was addicted to luxury, a culture where greed and, and the love of money led to injustices and the mistreatment of other people. And you see in Amos 1-2, it says, The Lord roars over Zion. He was angry at His people for living that way. And, and basically, 
These people were living in luxury while there were people around them that were, that, were giving, that were dying and were going without and they were giving no thought to it. Listen to this in, in Amos 8, 4, 4 through 6. Hear this, you who trample the needy to do away with the humble of the land, saying this, When will the new moon be over so that we can sell grain? And the Sabbath when we may open the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger and cheat with dishonest scales? so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals that we may sell the refusal. You see what the love of money? 1 Timothy 6, he says, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evils. You've pierced themselves with many pangs. Even taking advantage of people. They were literally saying this, when's church over so I can go make gain? When's church over so I can go make some more money? Even if it means taking advantage of get, Let's get this over with so we can go do something. That was their attitude. And Amos is teaching us the love for wealth and stuff hardens our heart towards others. That's 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 11. And, and here's, what, here's what the scriptures are showing us. Past redemption in the gospel fuels present generosity. Past redemption fuels. You look at Deuteronomy 6. He says, hey guys, when you go into this land... There's going to be cisterns you didn't dig and vineyards you didn't plant. And, and there's going to be a wealth of stuff. You're going to have so much stuff. Here's what he says. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord. Be careful that you don't think, I did this with my own hands and I did all this. No, no. He's saying, be careful. And guess what you find? Exactly that happening in them and us. So we need to discipline ourselves to maintain a godly sense of an attitude towards work, a godly attitude towards stuff but also a godly attitude towards giving. You see that on your handout, number C. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Listen to this. Now, say that, now, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a chill forgiver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Why do we have an abundance? For good deeds. As a reflection of our Father. And I can't tell you what that is, and you don't tell me. You know your budget. You set that before God and say, God, give me wisdom. Discipline yourselves. Give me wisdom. Listen, listen to what C.S. Lewis said on this. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as ours, we are probably giving away too little. He's talking about believers. Listen to this. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charity expenditure excludes them. Here's what C.S. Lewis is saying. When's the last time you couldn't do something because you gave away too much? I'm asking myself the same question. When's the last time I went without or even remotely came close to that so that others could have basic necessities? I, I, I don't know. That, that's sacrificial giving. That, that's sacrificial giving, not, not out of an excess, but of faith. It, we, you want to naturally say, how much do I give? Look at the cross and give. Look at what God has done for you and me and give. That's what the scriptures say, give. It'll look different in all of our lives. And don't compare yourself to others. Don't do that. Look at the cross and give. But, but it's going to come discipline. It's going to become discipline. It's going to become a, a, a planned thing. You're not going to stumble into generosity. You're going to discipline yourself so that we can be generous. You don't stumble into generosity. Oh, I just found myself with extra money. No, you discipline yourself. And lastly, uh, we got to discipline ourselves with our attitude towards serving. And I say that last because, listen to me, in our serving, we must be careful to do it constructively. 
And, and my friend Emiliano back there, again, not to embarrass him, he was willing to do anything that we would help him out. And, he, and we got a pressure washer, pressure washed this building. He pressure washed the building so that he could meet his family's needs. It was constructive. There was dignity behind it. We got to be careful how we serve those in need so that, so that we help them and not ultimately hurt them. We are called, listen, it's on your handout, to supplement the responsible, not subsidize the irresponsible. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm not telling you to subsidize the irresponsible. We're here to help out those who really want to do what they're required to do, but are just hitting some rough spots. We're not called to rescue lazy people from poverty. Read the Proverbs. You'll see that. You, you look at 1 Timothy 5, Paul talks about real needs there. This person is a true, they have real needs. They have this, and in that case, in 1 Timothy 5, it was a widow who had no family to take care of them. You know what he says? That's, a, that's true, true widow right there. Go take care of them, church. And, and what we're talking about involves more than just throwing money at the problem. It is talking about investing in people's lives, caring for them, loving them. It means helping people differently because needs are different and circumstances are different. There, there's a multitude of reasons why somebody will find themselves lacking and having a need. Some due to a lack of discipline, some situations in spite of discipline. But will we serve in an overflow of God's grace? You know, what, what, would, what would our communities and neighborhoods and work and this church look like if we live to make much of God's grace, if we live to make much of God and not ourselves, if we were willing to empty ourselves because of the love for God? I need that. And, and, and you know, I... That, that's why on November 21st, listen to me, bring this thing home and land it real quick. November 21st, the, the Thanksgiving Day meal for, the, for those who participate in our food pantry. Will, will we forego something to come to that? Paul, came, Paul Pass and Mary Pass are faithful to serve the University Community Ministries. They have a severe need for men's clothing of all kind. Listen to me, when he told me that, I can tell you 10 shirts in my closet right now that I'm going to bring that I ain't worn and can't tell you the last time I wore them. Here's the shame thing. The other day, it it's kind of got cool for about 10 minutes. And I went into my closet and said, well, I need to find some long sleeve, a couple long sleeve shirts. I had to wash five long sleeve shirts because they were that dusty. It had been that long since I wore them. That's shameful. I was, I'm just misery loves company, so I don't want y'all to feel convicted and think I'm not. I'm battling the same as you. I love a nice shirt the same as you. But will we sacrifice? When I look at the cross, what does the cross command? Will we do it? Will we steward our lives in such a way that God can give us away? Will we do it?